Okay, Jesse, last week's story had some frustration, but also some inspiration. What do you have for me this time around? When a father of two is found shot to death in his car on the day after Christmas, 2003, the police initially suspect suicide. But when no gun is found, the police are led down a rabbit hole of illicit sex, greed, and questionable motivations. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about sad futures, bad moochers, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you are enjoying the show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. Yes, thank you so much to this week's amazing new set of patrons. I hope you all purchase this for yourself as a nice little holiday present. Welcome to Heather P., Sophia S., and Christy S., Lauren T., Christine G., and Beverly H., Sydney M., Megan M., and Candace L. Thank you so much for all of your support, patrons, and for all of your support, everyone, for this <laughs> wonderful year of love murder. So, Jesse, this sounds like a case that we have done before, doesn't it? A day after Christmas murder? Not day after Christmas, but a gunshot wound in a car in 2003. I believe it was a female, though, and they thought it was suicide at first, but then they found out it wasn't. Oh, are you talking about the Irish dentist, like, that they set it up? That was, I think, gas, that they tried to say that their spouses had killed themselves together in the car. Oh, gosh, if you guys are, like, out of order, we don't want to give you any more details. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> it was, like, right when you were reading it, I was like, am I having deja vu? Or do we cover something that was of a similar era and similarish death? So I'm so curious to see what you have in store for me for this one. You'll see. It has a lot of the similar themes that we have to many a love murder, which is usually <laughs> scandalous sex and illicit secrets and questionable <laughs> motives. I think you could say that about quite a few love murders. But this one is a little bit different. So I think we should jump right into it. Let's do it. Oh, you know what else? It actually is also on an island that we've already covered in a previous case. So this may sound familiar to you. Okay. Whitby Island in Washington State is considered a vacation spot for many and home to about 60,000 residents. Some of the homes are multi-million dollar sprawling estates and vacation homes for the very wealthy, but still many more are more modest houses belonging to the year-round residents. The year-round residents are an inclusive bunch, and this is the type of place where everyone seems to know everyone and certainly everyone else's business. It was also the type of place where neighbors looked out for one another, where you were certain to notice something out of place when there's a car that 
doesn't belong on your street, parked on your street, or when it's near your neighbor's driveway and you know that they're out of town for the holidays. Yep. That was certainly true for the residents on Wall Road. Two women out for a Boxing Day beach walk first noticed a small SUV in a bright yellow color as they set out for a misty fog walk on the day after Christmas in 2003. They noticed again upon their return. It was by this time 4.30 p.m. and full dark in the depths of the winter. So they decided if it was still there the following day, then they would consider reporting it. Okay. They knew it was kind of strange, but there was nothing so obviously strange about it that they felt like they were in danger. Okay. Yeah. And if it's someone living in their car, it's like the holidays too. So it's like- Yeah. You don't want to exactly kick somebody out, especially when it doesn't seem like they're hurting anyone. They're just parked in a weird place. So they would not get the opportunity to report it the next day because- Another person, a school teacher, would ultimately call the police. He had been out with his sons and dog, and this is early on the 27th, when he noticed that the yellow SUV's passenger door was open. The dome light was glaring eerily in the fog. When he approached, he realized that there was a man in the driver's seat. Okay. At first, he thought, well, is the guy passed out? A little too much holiday cheer. Maybe he was passed out drunk. But he wondered why the door was open. And as he got closer, he realized in horror that this man was, in fact, dead. Okay. When the police arrived, they confirmed that the driver was indeed dead. In fact, it seemed like he had been so for some time. The body was almost in full rigor. He had likely died the day before. The man was covered in blood. It was just all over his chest. He had a big wound to his head. It was all over the car. And he appeared to have been shot directly in the head, like kind of between the eyes, but above the bridge of the nose. Okay. Shattered remains of sunglasses littered the front seat and the man's corpse. He had been likely shot directly through his sunglasses. Oh. Which was also a little strange because the last couple days had been quite gloomy. So it seemed strange he was wearing sunglasses. At first, it kind of appeared as though this man had picked this location, which was relatively remote and set back from the road, to perhaps commit suicide. A tragedy for sure, but an all-too-common occurrence around the holidays when a lot of really profound feelings can be brought up in the depths of winter. Upon further inspection, the police were able to recover a 380 caliber shell casing but absolutely no gun. They looked everywhere. And it was obvious that obviously this guy hadn't shot himself in the head and then thrown it. So there was only so many places it could be. The keys were still in the ignition and the dead man's seatbelt was still on. The authorities saw that the driver's side window was partially rolled down. It seemed as though he had actually began to roll down the window to speak to somebody or somebody had maybe been approaching Mm -hmm. him. And then he was completely caught off guard when this person shot him directly in the head. And based on the gunpowder residue, it looks like it was an extremely close shot. So this is almost point blank. Okay. This person got very close. This presumed suicide was looking more and more like a homicide. And in such a deserted location, only visible to a handful of residents. And and this was the type of place, like the type of street that only people who lived there would really be. This is not a very popular thoroughfare by any means. It would seem that somebody would have had to 
lure him out to this location for this purpose. Okay. A registration in the glove box of the SUV would reveal the victim's identity, 33-year-old Russell Douglas. But who wanted him dead? The answer to that question, the who, but also the why, would prove elusive to detectives for years. It would take almost a decade to bring any sort of justice for Russell Douglas, and even then, and even now, questions linger. The cast of characters that the police would end up meeting would rival those that you could read about in a fictional whodunit. <laughs> it really is. It is like a mystery level amount of people and motivations. Yeah. The bitter soon-to-be ex-wife with not a kind word to say and seemingly no grief at his demise. So bad. Uh, yeah, it's rough. A beauty queen landlord and friend to the couple with her own tragic origin story. The beauty queen's married rocker lover, who was the lead singer of a band called Buck Naked and the Exhibitionists. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> what genre of music? Rock, baby. Just rock. Straight up rock. Just straight up rock. Rock and roll. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I actually probably should have looked up some YouTube videos of that one. Are they actually butt naked? No, he's like, so it's like the name Buck Naked. He's like Buck Naked, first and oh, last name, and God. the exhibitionist. Oh, my God. And then eventually a Texas oil millionaire who would go on to make horse racing history. You're lying. I am not lying. But doesn't this sound like we're creating some sort of stage play and making it a whodunit with this cast of characters? Yes, uh, yeah, this guy had some some regrets about uh, some decisions he made, I have to say, this oil millionaire. It's like Clue mixed with a uh, dynasty. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, I need to recut the lead because that's perfect. <laughs> the investigation would span many years, multiple states, even countries, and would even include a suspect who would disappear during a natural disaster as the police desperately search for him. There will be secret tips, betrayals galore, and one enduring loyalty that would prevent all of the conspirators from facing true justice, in my opinion. This case is really something else. <laughs> So I picked this one for our year-end episode because Russell's body was discovered officially by the police and by the school teacher on December 27th, 2003, which is exactly 20 years from the day this episode will air. So RIP, Russell. This is a case I've had on my radar since we started the podcast, Andy. Really? Mm-hmm. I think I've had this book since 2020. It includes... All of the type of complexities and interesting backstories that only a talented true crime author like Anne Rule could really do justice to. So yes, my main source today is Anne Rule's book, Practice to Deceive. And this was actually the last full-length Anne Rule book that she published before her death. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So she had, I think, one more Crime Files anthology published the next year. So this is the last, like, really deep case that she did. Due to the fascinating nature of the crime and the people involved, this case has also been featured on a lot of crime shows and even inspired a 2017 Lifetime movie. 
So I watched a Dateline episode called A Gathering Storm, as well as a 48 Hours episode called Dangerous Beauty. And there's also a Snapped episode about this as well. But enough about that. I think we should get right into this by talking about Russell Douglas and his on-again, off-again relationship with his hairstylist wife, Brenna. All right, let's go. Trigger warning this episode for suicide, domestic violence, and sexual assault. I will not be really lingering on any of those things, but I just wanted to let you guys know in advance. Russ was one of three kids who had grown up on Whidbey Island. He was born in 1970 with very severely crossed eyes and had required multiple surgeries throughout his young life. And even as an adult, his eyes would sometimes cross when he was really tired. Was that why he was wearing sunglasses? Potentially. His parents believed, and I think his siblings might have said this as well, that going through this adversity when he was really young had made him really want to achieve in his life, and he was a really hard worker. Russ was gifted intellectually, and at the time of his death, he was employed by a tech company, and he was also pursuing a master's degree in business. Wow, okay. His mother also had a PhD, I believe, in nursing and administration, and she taught at a college as well. So this was a pretty smart family that valued education. And this is kind of why his family was so puzzled when he fell headlong in love with Brenna when they were both still teenagers. Both families said that this relationship was completely toxic and they had nothing in common, essentially. Really? Yes. According to Russell's mother, Gail, the couple had basically nothing in common except having short fuses. Oh, no. That's not a good thing to have in common. No. And that they were both guilty of playing mind games with one another. It was not a healthy relationship. Russell was very proud to have a college education and be pursuing a master's degree. Well, Brenna thought that higher education was a waste of time and money. So it doesn't seem like they have a lot of values that are similar. Exactly. Brenna had a large circle of friends while Russell was kind of more of a loner. The couple fought constantly. Holly, Russell's sister, said, quote, they might have gone on to live better lives separately, but they just did not belong together. Yeah. I feel like everyone knows someone like that. Yeah. And Holly really got along with Brenna. In fact, she was a little frustrated sometimes with her own brother because of the drama and the fighting between the two, it sounds like his family really recognized that he was an equal part of the problem. They both had their own issues and they got together really young. When Brenna became pregnant in the couple's early to mid-20s, Russell's mom was happy to be having a grandchild. She said that she was happy that she wanted to welcome the child, but she also said to them, okay, I love you guys both. I'm really excited that you're having a baby, but this doesn't mean you have to get married. Really? Yeah. Let's not go crazy here. You guys could co-parent. I think you could both do a wonderful job with this baby, but this doesn't automatically mean you have to get married. It's a good parent right there. Yeah. And she was just trying to set them up for success, meaning that like maybe two very healthy, stable homes if they both found their paths, would be better than one dysfunctional home. But they didn't really listen. They did wait until their son was a year old, but then at that point they did get married. Because they wanted to? They just loved each other. I mean, I if you talk to Brenna later, I don't know where this love was coming from, but there was definitely something that kept drawing these two together, whether it was just wanting the family to be together or history. They had been on and off since they were teenagers. Yeah. 
whatever the draw was, it was definitely powerful, but it seemed like the two just were not aligned at all and never really had been. Okay. So they did end up having a second child. They had a little girl a few years later, and eventually they opened up a hair salon that Brenna ran. They called it Just Be Salon, and Russ did help her with accounting and the business side of it. Russ got a great job at Tetra Tech, where he seemed to be pretty much universally liked. However, the couple's rocky relationship continued with accusations of infidelity, controlling behavior, and jealousy on both sides. By the time Russell was found dead, they were already headed to divorce. In fact, they had been separated for several months, and Russ even had his own bachelor pad on the mainland. However, the couple had reconciled for the Christmas holiday, and Russ had been staying in the family home once again. But it was unclear whether that was for the sake of the children, who were now five and eight, yeah, and if they were just trying to have a happy holiday altogether, or because they were legitimately giving the marriage another chance. It looks like he had filed for divorce at one point and then retracted it, essentially. Okay. The detectives had to find out where Brenna and Russell stood, inform the widow that she was, in fact, recently a widow, and check out, of course, the number one suspect, as the spouse always is. The investigators arrived at Brenna Douglas's home just after 10 p.m. on the 27th to deliver the bad news. So this is pretty late at night. It's not, you don't really expect guests at like 10, 15 p.m. No, no. And especially that week between Christmas and New Year's where everyone's off. Yeah. So they did not launch into right away telling her that Russell had been found dead. They kind of knocked on her door, asked if it was her. The kids were in bed already at that point and then asked if they could come in. And they said, well, do you know where your husband is? And she said she did not. And then pretty much immediately, without asking any other questions, she launched into a tirade about how bad Russ was, how he had failed their marriage, why they were separated, what she didn't like about him. But the police were really confused at this point because they expected her to be like, why are you here? Yeah. Why are you asking me about my husband? What happened? And she said nothing. So this went on until almost 11 p.m. So for 45 minutes, she's like, yeah, we're not getting along so well. We're separated just because he's done all these things. And she is not stopping to say, wait a minute. Why are you here? What's going on? So sus. Yeah. And finally, the police are like, aren't you wondering why we're here? And she was like, oh, yeah. Why are you here? And at that point, they informed her that he had been found dead and she had no reaction. So they're like, well, maybe she's really surprised. And the detective was like, he's been shot. We believe your husband may have been murdered. And they said later that they try not to judge people's reaction to such shocking news and grief, but that she had no reaction, no follow-up questions. She was just like, okay, bye. Yeah, she didn't seem like particularly surprised. They kept on talking to her and she didn't seem particularly upset. And she didn't stop bad-mouthing him, which was the crazy thing. Because usually when you find out somebody who is the father of your children, somebody you obviously once loved, and you find out they passed, your tune changes a little bit. You could be mad at somebody. You find out that they died, and all of a sudden you're, like, remembering the greatest hits, and you're thinking about them, and you feel horrible. She just kept on t 
talking to the police saying that not only did Russell abuse drugs and alcohol, that he was emotionally and verbally abusive, but worst of all was that Russ had a deviant lifestyle. She alleged that Russell had affairs, not just with women, but also with men, and had proposed that the two of them become swingers. Brenna has said that she had never done anything like that and that she was completely against the lifestyle. She said she was not into, like, super kinky sex in any way. Like, she wasn't into any sort of bondage. She wasn't into a lot of things he was into. And she had grown tired of Russell's sexual appetites and his kit of sex toys. Wait, she's still saying all this to the cops in the same in the, the same, same conversation. Interview. Yeah. She's just dropping that she doesn't like his box of sex toys. Mm-hmm. With the cops after they tell her that her husband is dead. Yeah, I don't know if she was kind of trying to say, like, maybe this his deviant lifestyle is what led this to this moment, or she's processing. I don't know what's going on. But they're so taken aback. Yeah, literally someone called me from Dan's office the other week and I thought that something happened to him. <laughs> I couldn't imagine not being so concerned and upset if someone was at my door talking about that. Well, even when they asked her like why she wasn't really emoting, she, she still blamed him. She was like, oh, because after my mother died, Russell told me I was overreacting and that I needed to tamp down my feelings. So I guess I just don't have feelings anymore. Gosh. Okay. So she's looking real not great. She's not looking great. And she just really is just bringing it back to how bad Russell was in their relationship, even after she's found out he's been murdered. This next part that she's talking about might have happened the next day, but most of this happened during the initial conversation. Okay. So she said when they called it quits, Russell had moved out and he had started dating an older woman. Now, I don't know the age of this woman exactly. She was also pseudonymed in Anne Rule's book. But Brenna thought that she was 50 years old or close to 50 years old. And Russ is 33. I think she wasn't exactly that much older, but she's like 40. <laughs> yeah, she's probably in her <laughs> mid-40s. She's like our age. <laughs> She's like, oh, such an old, decrepit woman. She is 40 years old. <laughs> is she into his sex box? Well, so they talk to the, the lover eventually. So we'll get there. Yeah. I also think, and I'm, I couldn't find the part in the Anne Rule book, but I think for a little while they had kind of like a business and it was both of them where they would do like those Tupperware parties, but for sex toys. Yeah, of course they did. Yeah, so it was not like this is limited to him. But she was trying to say she was never into it. She never liked it. That wasn't her thing. It's deviant. Yeah. It's yeah, his yeah. thing. Yeah, it's definitely his thing. And he forced her into all of these scenarios. Then she didn't want to be there. Okay. I was going to say that comes off as like just trying to keep your side of the street clean. Maybe. I mean, maybe she's like, oh my gosh, she was murdered. And now they're going to look into our sex life and I have to project everything onto him. So she said that she was pretty sure that he was done seeing that older woman because they had decided to reconcile only a couple weeks before Christmas. And Russ had returned to the family home on Christmas Eve. Brenna was still miffed, however, by the present that Russell had given her for Christmas because they were supposed to be taking it slow. He had given her lingerie, flavored condoms because she insisted on safe sex, and a sex swing. 
So three out of three things that she supposedly hates. Yes. So my guy, you need to get a friend who can tell you what to buy for your wife that you're trying to get back together with for Christmas, if this is true. So despite that, despite that she was a little upset with him, and she also mentioned that they had gotten into a little argument Christmas morning because he wanted to eat breakfast first before the kids opened presents, and she was saying, no, the kids come first, they open presents, and then you get breakfast. Other than those two little hiccups, it was a pretty happy Christmas day. Everything else was totally normal. When did he give her the sex swing? Was it when they were all unwrapping gifts? Because that also is concerning. Could you imagine? It's like, mommy, open your stocking. And she just like pulls out a bunch of cotton candy flavored condoms. Oh, no. They're like, that's a fun swing. Can we get on it? We also don't have evidence that this was no. really what he gave her, of course. No. We just, I want to put that out there, of course. So she said that other than that little hiccup, they had mostly a nice day. Her stepfather came over for dinner, and then it sounds like he went and played Xbox with one of the kids for a little while, and then he came into the bedroom. They watched Bad Boys 2, and they went to bed. So she said that then they passed out, and then the next day... Russell said that it was, I think, around 11 a.m.-ish, and he said that he was going to go out and run an errand for her. It was going to be something that she would like, and that after that, he was hopefully better than the sex swing. Flowers, maybe. After that, he was thinking about going surfing, which was like his new passion, which Russell did like working out a lot. He really gave himself a lot to hobbies. And when he decided to do something, he went all in. And his latest hobby was surfing. So that's what she thought he was doing. So that is when he left. And then she had ended up going on to the mainland. And I think she got together actually with his sister. And they went to go see a movie with the kids, which they said that the movie they saw was Hook, which is kind of crazy because that movie came out in the 90s. It definitely did. It came out in the 90s. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that is what she said. Although maybe they were having a revival because it is kind of a Christmas movie. Is it? Kind of. It's like they go home for Christmas to see Wendy. Let's see. It came out in 1991, 10 years prior. Yeah, so that's kind of crazy. Yeah. I think that was what they said they watched. I could be corrected. I will issue a correction or we will edit this out if so. I didn't know it was a Christmas movie. It takes place at Christmas, yeah. I miss Robin Williams. I know. Me too. Makes me really sad that his name was used in vain in the mother god cult. I know. It feels very disrespectful. They should be sued. They should be by his estate. It's horrible. <laughs> okay, so she says then they went to watch a movie, they got home later, and then he just never came home. She said that's just Russell being Russell, being all selfish, probably holed up in his apartment doing God knows what. So she didn't really think anything of it. She said she was frustrated. She slept with her phone next to her all night, hoping he was going to call her back. And then he didn't. And then she kind of had just written him off for the 27th. So, yeah, she hadn't notified anyone or anything because they weren't really together. And now she was frustrated again. And then they showed up. And maybe there was some part of her that wasn't surprised. Maybe it was just that she wasn't good at processing her feelings. Or like she said to the detectives, Russ had made me tamp down my feelings for so long. Maybe I can't feel them anymore. But in any case, that's why she said that she didn't have this reaction. So Brenna's alibi was airtight. She had gone over to the mainland. She was with her sister-in-law and other people for the entire day. And I'm not even entirely sure exactly when they came 
back to Whidbey Island. But in any case, it was way out of the range when he had been killed. Okay. So she 100% was not the shooter. That, of course, did not mean that she wasn't involved in some capacity. Yeah. The detectives ended up conducting hundreds of interviews to attempt to verify or dispute Brenna's claims and to find out if Russell really had this so-called, and I think this is highly subjective, deviant lifestyle. (laughs) Highly subjective. (laughs) Yes. That had gotten him in trouble in some ways or in with some element that had gotten him killed somehow. A dildo came flying out of his sex box. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that would be a horrible Christmas story. It's like a possessed dildo kills you on Christmas. Yeah, I just like, I don't see how the two align. Well, they're thinking like maybe if he was having an affair with somebody who was, you know, they were trying to hide it as well. And one thing could have led to the other. Who knows? I mean, think about also Deviant Lifestyle, that um, case with Dr. Jan Canty's husband. Yes, that's... A deviant lifestyle. That was a deviant lifestyle that nobody thought that this upstanding, yes, professorial psychologist guy would have. Yeah. So they have to look into this, obviously. Yeah. They interviewed his whole family, many of his coworkers, people who even worked at the gym that he worked out at, his neighbors. I mean, anyone with any connection to Russ whatsoever. Great. They interviewed. Anne Rule even wrote that in her very, very long career, we're talking 37 books, she had never written about a case where the investigating detectives interviewed as many possible witnesses or informants as this one. Yeah. So they're trying to find any thread here. Yeah, I love how deep they're going. They're going deep. Absolutely no one knew Ross to use drugs or excessively drink. He drank socially but nobody knew him to be like a super drunkard or out of control in any way. Substance abuse, yeah. Yes. All of the people who worked with Russ said that he was an upstanding guy, a very respectful employee. He never hit on anyone. They interviewed the women and the men, for that matter, in the office, and everyone said, absolutely not. He was never even remotely creepy. And it turns out that most of the people at the office had no idea he was even really having that many problems in his marriage. He just didn't talk about it. Yeah, he had a picture, I think, of Brenna and the kids. He seemed like a family man for all they knew. So this was not anything that anyone he worked with knew about. They ended up searching his bachelor pad, his like kind of divorce apartment, and it turned up nothing unusual. He did have a few sex toys, but they said it was nothing out of the ordinary. There wasn't like a suitcase full of them. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't like a, it was like a Rimbella. Yeah. He like opens up the closet and they just like all the dildos fall, fall out. out. Yeah. <laughs> it was not like that. There was there was a respectable amount of dildos. I don't know what that is, but <laughs> normal. I think it's just so crazy that It's like if they have any sort of like sex toy, I feel like they run with it. I mean, I don't even know. They don't even say like what exactly they were. What it is like, it could be like nothing. So they say he didn't really have that many sex toys. They also said that they didn't really find any like weird porn or anything. And any porn that he had that was on his computer was pretty run-of-the-mill vanilla stuff. There was nothing to be alarmed with. Like it just did not seem that this was like the sex freak that they were describing. and. There was only a couple people who 
reiterated what Brenna had said, but then they later admitted that they only had heard it from Brenna. Okay. So when they were like, well, did you know about this? Have you heard about this? They could think of no evidence that they had that any of this was true, except for what Brenna had complained to them about. And that once he had worn a kilt, which I don't think seems sexually. <laughs> I mean, his last Dan wore a kilt for like years with some precious weapons. I know. So. And his last name's Douglas. I'm guessing that there's some nationality there, but I don't know how that would be. Also, though, just because you wear a kilt doesn't. Are they insinuating that he's gay or that it's he It's not even cross-dressing. It's no. men wear kilts all the time. It's oh, just, my God. I can't. That was the only thing that people could point to, like, that he was doing something that was somehow confusing or strange to them in 2003 and that he wore spandex when he worked out or something. It was just really ridiculous. I mean, all of this was reaching. There was no evidence yes. that any of this was happening at all. So they also reached out to the girlfriend and he had dated this older woman who had met his family and his mom actually said that the older woman was really good for him because she kind of had boundaries with him and she was more mature and she would just shut him down rather than partaking in this like bickering like he had with Brenna. She said that he was totally vanilla in bed, that they had never done anything weird Stop or odd it. or swinging. She said actually he was kind of like more on the tame side for her lovers. And when they were like, well, is he maybe gay? Has he ever expressed any interest in that to you? She was like, no. She said that the only thing he'd ever mentioned was that once he was at the gym and he was kind of like, oh, I think this guy was checking me out or something. But like, yeah, he was no. like, that's all. She was like, that is literally the only time I can think that he mentioned it. So she's like, I don't know what she's talking about. She said that he had ultimately ended things with her. It had come to a mutual decision because he did want to reconcile with Brenna. And she said that he really hadn't badmouthed her at all. Certainly not the way Brenna was badmouthing him. She said that the only complaint and the reason that things had ended between them and it was no longer possible to move forward was because Brenna was really bad with money. And he was having a hard time with her spending habits. Okay. So that's a red flag. Yes. So that was what the girlfriend said. She said that they officially ended the relationship on December 6th, which would align with when Brenna said they started reconciling. Okay. The girlfriend, by the way, had also an airtight alibi. So she was... We should call her lady friend since she <laughs> She's a little older. She's more mature. <laughs> So she had an airtight alibi. She's definitely not involved in this at all. I didn't think so. So they are coming up with a big old nothing. I'm pretty sure they looked into all of Brenna's stuff as best they could too. And nothing's coming up that's alarming in any capacity. So eventually they resorted to combing through all of Russell's phone records, trying to find the piece that did not fit. So they managed to identify pretty much every person and, and come up with a reason why he was talking to those people, except for one unknown Las Vegas number that had called Russ's phone three times on December 23rd. Shady. Las Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> and it looked like Russ had dialed the same number twice that same day. So there was a little bit of phone tag going on. So they eventually tracked down the phone number and spoke to its owner. And this was a woman named Peggy Sue Thomas. Peggy Sue? Peggy Sue. It's Peggy Sue's diner on the way to Las Vegas. 
<laughs> I've never been there. That sounds fun. So cute. Yeah, it's a 50s diner. Well, Peggy, who mostly just went by Peggy, had been raised on Whidbey Island herself. And she had been friends with Russ and Brenna, though she was much closer to Brenna. Okay. She had actually worked at Brenna's salon as a hairstylist until, I think, pretty recently. She explained that they had played phone tag on the 23rd when she happened to be in the area, and she had eventually dropped off a present for Russ to give Brenna for her. And from what I understand is that she was not on the actual island. She said that she was visiting the area, and so she knew that Russ's apartment was on the mainland and not on the island, and so she was dropping it off with him so he could bring it to Brenna when he went over on Christmas Eve. Okay. So that's why she's like giving it to him to bring to her. So Peggy said, yep, I did eventually see him. We played a little phone tag and then I quickly dropped it off at his apartment. We probably only talked for about five minutes because again, I'm closer to Brenna. She said that she was also Brenna and Russ's landlord, really Brenna's now because Brenna's in the house. Brenna did not own the house, nor did Russ, that they were living in with their family. It was actually Peggy's house. So when Peggy moved to Las Vegas, she let Brenna and the kids, and maybe Russ, I'm not entirely clear on this timeline, move into her house. And the whole point of this move was it was going to be a rent-to-own situation. Okay. She was like permanently living in Vegas now. So she wanted to move on. Brenna really wanted her house. She wanted Brenna to buy her house. But it seems like Brenna was maybe having some money difficulties because she was getting a little frustrated because it looks like Brenna wasn't going to be able to buy the house now, and she really needed to sell it. Okay. Soon the police discovered why maybe Brenna was having money difficulties. She had not been honest about her financial situation. She had originally told the detectives that she was doing financially fine and that the salon was doing well, but that was not the truth at all. In fact, the salon and Brenna personally were both in a lot of debt. So there was a lot of debt going on. Russ did well, well enough, and he paid his child support and he took care of the house and everything, but he didn't have a ton of extras either. There was not a lot of money flowing between the two of them. She had also said to the police that she wasn't aware about Russ having any life insurance policies. In fact, he just handled all the money, so she wouldn't even know. It wouldn't even be in her realm of knowledge or interest whether he had these policies or not. But when only a couple days after his murder, she was hitting up the insurance companies trying to stop get the it. money. Stop, stop. Oh, my God. Babes. They're like, wow, you found out about those policies real fast. Because when we talked to you, you said you had no knowledge of anything. Oh, my God. I can't with these people. They are pretty suspicious of Brenna at this point. And together, the policies were over a half million dollars. Okay. Which would be a good pretty penny towards bailing out her business and buying Peggy's house. Yeah, how in debt is she? The kind of in debt where... She's going to lose the salon, likely, and she would not be able to afford buying any house, probably. This was not so bad that I don't think she could crawl out of the hole, but it was so bad that she would have to figure out a whole new livelihood, essentially. Yeah. So at this point, she's also fighting with the insurance companies because they don't want to pay her <laughs> because they're saying you haven't been excluded as your husband's murderer. 
Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. So she's fighting with the insurance companies. And I guess the insurance companies wanted her to take a polygraph. They essentially said, like, you can take a polygraph. There's also possibilities where you can put it in a trust for your children, but you don't get access to it. Yeah. I think that's amazing. Yeah. And she was like, no, I'm going to fight you for it. It's my money. Give me my money. That's kind of crazy that they'll give it to her with a polygraph. Yeah. I don't know exactly what the process is, but they always do their own internal investigation to determine whether or not there's something they should be looking into. Because usually insurance companies are figuring out how they cannot pay you. <laughs> they're looking into this too. And of course, I, I don't know if they're required. That'd be an interesting question if they're required to share their findings with law enforcement or not. I would assume that they would have to, or at least the law enforcement could get a uh, warrant to get that information. Yeah, I feel like law enforcement could at least politely ask them legally. Yeah. <laughs> hey, this broad who's calling you for all her money that of her deceased husband who she <laughs> didn't seem to care about, could you uh, share that polygraph with us, please? Well, the investigator's gut instincts were that Brenna had somehow orchestrated the murder of her husband for financial gain, but they <laughs> just could not prove it. There was no evidence anywhere they looked tying her to this at all. She didn't have a boyfriend. There wasn't anything sketchy about her actions that day or in the days previous. She had mostly only talked to friends of hers and people who were known associates. So no matter how they shake this, it's just not coming out the way they think. The case languished for months and threatened to go completely cold. Until a day at the very end of July 2004, when the Island County Sheriff's Office received an anonymous tip. Uh-oh. It was a phone call. The informant was a man. And he was clearly very nervous. The first thing he asked for was confirmation that there had indeed been a murder that has since gone unsolved on Whidbey Island on the day after Christmas 2003. When the police confirmed that, yes, indeed, there had been an unsolved murder that had happened on that day, and they were very desperate to catch the culprit, the anonymous tipster got really nervous. He ended up hanging up. It would take a few days and a few phone calls from this same person for eventually the tipster to start feeling comfortable sharing the information that he had. Yeah. Eventually, what he shared was that he had knowledge about the crime from the shooter. He said that the shooter was a man. It was a friend of his. This shooter was from Whidbey Island, and he had been there with his girlfriend at the time of the shooting, but that they didn't live there anymore. Okay. That he had since moved with his girlfriend to Las Vegas. Oh. And that the girlfriend was named Peggy. And that she had allegedly aided in the murder by luring the victim to the place where he was shot by saying that she had a Christmas gift for his wife. After verifying that the tipster had no way of knowing some of the details that he had presented, making sure that they weren't things that were talked about in the media. Yeah. And ascertaining that he was legit and obviously finding out his real name and, and you know, finding out about him. They decided that they needed to take a good hard look at Ms. Peggy Sue Thomas. By the time the police were looking at Peggy, who I believe was not even yet 40 at this time. She was in her late 30s, about to turn 40. 
the statuesque redhead had lived enough for several lifetimes. She really had. <laughs> she had been deployed to Desert Storm as an aircraft mechanic. What? She had been married and divorced twice. She had two beautiful daughters from her second marriage. She had lost 100 pounds. And then she had gone on to win the Mrs. Washington title. <laughs> yeah, after she lost 100 pounds, she ended up going and becoming like an older pageant person and even winning. It was like reported in different, like if it was Ms. or Mrs., I don't know, but it was like kind of like the elder states woman category. How do you even decide what to put in your Facebook profile? <laughs> With all of that going on. And then things had started getting kind of like sticky after she had this big win. She'd gone to Vegas where she had competed on the national level and she had not placed there. But she also fell in love with Vegas, the lights, the energy. She had spent most of her life on the Whidbey Island, like this smallish island community. And she thought Vegas was pretty exciting. And she was also enjoying the attentions of men for the first time. So she was really feeling herself when this all happened. And at this point, everyone knew that her second marriage, and that was the father of her two girls, was kind of in trouble. And it was kind of in trouble on both sides, to be honest. We don't want to give Peggy all the blame for that one. So everybody knew that she had turned her life around. She was a real head turner. She was now famous in the area for being a beauty queen. But few people knew that she came from a family that was mired in tragedy. Okay. When Peggy was born in 1965, she already had eight older half-siblings. Wow. Okay. Yes. She had six half-siblings on her dad's side and two on her mother's. Okay. And her father's first wife, the mother of those six children, had been brutally murdered only two years before her birth. Okay. Her dad, Jimmy Stackhouse, had been in the Navy at the time of the murder, he was stationed in San Jose, California. He and his wife, Mary Ellen, had six kids, three girls, and three boys, ranging wow. in, it's like real Brady Bunch, only they weren't all of similar ages. They were ranging in age from 18 months, only a year and a half, to eight years old. Okay. While Jimmy was away attending mandatory naval classes at a base in Nashville, Tennessee, a very, very deeply disturbed 16-year-old male neighbor crept into the Stackhouse's home and attacked her with a hammer while her children were sleeping upstairs. Oh, my God. They said that her she had been eating ice cream and having a cup of coffee and watching television, and they found it happened so suddenly that her cup of coffee was still balancing on the arm of the chair she had been sitting in. Oh, my God. Now, he was later caught— and eventually did admit to what he had done. And he said that he had taken a hammer. He had had these fantasies of hurting her specifically, but all women in general. He wanted to attack women. And they had gone into some altercation about his dog, and he had set his sights on her. So he was waiting for an opportunity when her husband was gone to do this, to fulfill his fantasy. He said that he struck her in the head maybe seven or eight times with the hammer. And while she was lying there bleeding, he wasn't sure if she was dead. He had previously gone to juvie for attacking a woman when he was only 12 years old, and he didn't want to leave any witnesses this time. So he went and got a knife from 
their kitchen, and he also slit her throat. When he was finished with that, he raped her body. Oh, my God. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure if she was still alive at that point or not. This is a very, very sick individual. The worst part is that the children came down the stairs the next day and found their mother in that condition. And she had been reportedly trying to, like, climb up the stairs. They think she was trying to protect her daughters and her children from him. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And that was why they think she was near the stairs. Like, I bet he had, like, tried to, like, get to the kitchen or something and she had tried to stop him. Yeah. So these kids were really little. And they basically, the eldest ones, picked up the little ones and went to a neighbor The only saving grace, they said, was that they had a very thick, like, dark carpet. So it wasn't entirely clear just how much blood was at the scene because it had been absorbed by the carpet. But still, this is extremely traumatic. And it was happening in 1963, which is before people really understood or offered any sort of therapeutic treatment for this type of experience. Yeah, of course. So the kids spent a lot of their life in early adulthood until they looked up the case themselves, not really understanding or knowing what happened to their mother. Yeah, which is probably for the best. Yeah, I think it was like both. It was a little of both. I think that for some of the kids, it was like, we don't want to dwell on that. We know that something bad happened and mom's no longer with us. For some of the kids, the not knowing made it almost scarier and worse. Okay. And it did affect them and and how they went through the world. So he was moved to Whidbey Island and he took his kids there because it seemed like a wholesome, safe atmosphere. And he very quickly hooked up with somebody that I believe he had hired to help watch his own kids. And it was a recently divorced woman who had two of her own daughters. And they ended up getting together and they had Peggy. And Peggy Sue was their only child together. They were together for several years, but they did ultimately end up divorced as well. Okay. So this was a 16-year-old named Gilbert Thompson who eventually confessed to the murder and the assault after being apprehended. And he was pretty quickly picked up because he had an absolutely horrific record. Again, he had assaulted a woman at the age of 12. I think that there had been another uh, attempted rape. There had been women that came forward later and talked about how they had been attacked or they hadn't come forward before. This had been an ongoing problem. And it was even said that his parents essentially made him sleep in like a doghouse outside and locked the doors because they had younger children that they were afraid of him sexually assaulting. She's Louise. Yes. So there was just something very, very wrong. Disturbed. Yeah. Yeah, disturbed with this child. Due to his age, he was later released, but he immediately was sent back to prison because only a few days after his release, he attacked a woman in a parking lot just in broad daylight. my God. Yeah. And at that point when he went back to prison, the prosecutor was like, please never let this man out. He needs psychological care, obviously, but this person is somebody who will- A danger to society. As long as he can move. As long as he can move, he will be attacking. There's an impulse in him that is- very, very disturbing in a way that I really don't like dwelling on because we don't usually cover those types of cases. <laughs> For a reason, yeah. For a reason, yes. So later on, Peggy's older sisters, her half-sisters, would 
essentially make a pilgrimage to San Jose and actually go to this house and find out about the horrific murder and speak to their neighbors and come to a bit of closure and peace about it. And then the next two parole hearings that they had, they attended to make sure that that monster would never be good on them. released into the world ever again. Yeah, actually, they did such an amazing job at the one in, I think it was 1995, that the next time he had a parole hearing, he actually, when he found out that they were coming, he said, I don't want to, I actually will withdraw my application because he did not want to have to face them again. They're very strong women. Very, very strong. And he did end up dying in prison just before Christmas 2004. There is a lot to love about the holidays. The food, the fun, the family and friends. Getting to see you way more often. Yes, of course. But one thing that isn't so great is the waste. Each year, Americans throw away 25% more trash from Thanksgiving to New Year's. But what if we told you there was a way to get all of your holiday shopping done without the guilty feeling over the waste that typically comes with it? Meet Blueland. Blueland is on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic by reinventing cleaning essentials to be better for you and the planet. And this holiday season, Blueland is having its best sale of the year. So you can save and shop sustainably for your friends, family, and even yourself. The idea is simple. Grab one of the beautiful Forever bottles, fill it with warm water, drop in a tablet, and get cleaning. Refills start at $2.25, and you don't even have to buy a new plastic bottle every time you run out. You can even set up a subscription or buy in bulk so you never run out of the products that you use the most. From cleaning sprays to hand soaps to toilet cleaner and laundry tablets, all Blueland products are made with ingredients that you can feel good about. Yeah, actually, I think the New Year's is right around the corner. By the time this episode comes out, it will be three or four days away. And I think being more sustainable and better to our mama earth would be a great resolution. Absolutely. Plus, for a limited time, Blue Land's hand soap is getting a festive upgrade with a beautiful chocolate box inspired gift set with cozy scents that are good for all winter, by the way, like peppermint, winterberry, and vanilla frost. It's the perfect gift or New Year's gift for your loved ones or yourself to reduce waste. I think that is a perfect New Year's resolution. To take advantage of their best sale of the year for up to 25% off your order, go to blueland.com slash lovemurder. You won't want to miss out on this. Blueland.com slash lovemurder. That's blueland.com slash lovemurder. Are you having trouble sleeping or staying asleep? Is poor sleep negatively impacting your life? Have you tried other sleep supplements with no success? Sleep is the foundation of our mental and physical health. When you are sleeping well, you can perform at your very best, mentally and physically. Introducing Beam's Dream Powder, a science-backed healthy hot cocoa for sleep. As most of you guys know, sleeping has never been easy for me. I am still working very hard to build a nighttime routine that fully gets me ready for slumber. I mean, New Year's resolution, I'm really trying to do less devices before bed. Well, one thing that makes my resolution a lot easier is Beam's Dream Powder, which has become an essential part of my nighttime routine. Yep. For me, Beam's Dream Powder really helps me transition out of work brain into rest mode. 
Plus, with delicious flavors like chocolate peanut butter, cinnamon cocoa, and sea salt caramel, with only 15 calories and zero grams of sugar, better sleep has never tasted better. Other sleep aids can cause next day grogginess, but Dream contains a powerful all-natural blend of reishi, magnesium, L-theanine, melatonin, and nano-CBD to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. The numbers do not lie. In a clinical study, 93% of participants reported Dream helped them get better sleep. Beam Dream is easy to add to your nighttime routine. Just mix Dream into hot water or milk or your favorite plant-based milk, froth, and enjoy before bed. Find out why Forbes and New York Times are all talking about Beam and why it's trusted by the world's top athletes and business professionals. If you want to try Beam's best-selling Dream Powder, get up to 40% off for a limited time when you go to shopbeam.com slash lovemurder and use code lovemurder at checkout. That's shopbeam.com slash lovemurder and use code lovemurder for up to 40% off. So very strong, but the entire family had clearly gone through a lot and was burying a lot in their feelings. And it did seem like tragedy seemed to follow the family. Two of the log cabins their father built at different points in their life burned down. Oh, no. Yeah. One of her brothers, I believed, survived being hit by a bus only to later on go into some sort of military service. And there was a guy who was kind of being a jackass at a bar. And he was like trying to challenge him to like an arm wrestling competition. And so the brother was like, fine. And he beat him. And he's like, that's it. I beat you. That's enough. And the guy was really liquored up and he pulled out a gun and started firing it, like waving it around at the bar and people were getting freaked out. And so Peggy's brother disarmed him and said, you're going to kill somebody with this thing. Like, no. And he, he managed to disarm him and take it away. But the guy had another gun and he pulled oh it my- and shot him in the gut and killed him. What? So there was like a lot of instances like that in their family. (sighs) And even the kids that did well or well enough in life had significant mental health challenges based on this trauma that had only very, I think, surfacely been worked through. Yeah. So her other sister, which was like her mother's side, half-sister, did, however, find lasting love with her husband. They were reportedly extremely happy. But unfortunately, he was struck by a car at the age of 49 years old and killed. (laughs) So it was at her brother-in-law's funeral, so that's that brother-in-law, that Peggy once again laid eyes on a guy we're about to talk about, one foxy Mr. Jim Hewden. So Jim had also grown up on Whidbey Island, but given that he was something like 12 or 13 years older than Peggy, they had never really crossed paths. However, Peggy had older siblings, and again, this is a community where people seem to know each other, so she had kind of had this childhood crush on him. He was obviously a young adult by the time she was beginning to develop these feelings, and she was very young, so he never looked twice at her. But that changed when his very dear childhood friend passed away in June of 2002, and he returned to Whidbey Island to perform at the funeral and the Irish wake that they held afterwards. Because Jim was not only a very successful software developer, 
who had licensed his software for a pretty penny, like into the multiple millions to Microsoft. He was also apparently a talented musician who had a band in Florida where he lived full time called Buck Naked and the Exhibitionists. Okay. So Peggy's always had kind of a crush on this guy. He's now up there in this emotional moment. She's heard he's done well for himself. He's made some money. He's living in Florida. And he's also playing the guitar and singing songs. And everyone's really into it. And there's a feeling people get when they get they see those musicians on stage, especially in probably, I'd imagine, a heightened emotional state. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> She's being sarcastic. <laughs> so she was like, boom, bam, bibbity boo, that guy is hot, and I remember him. And he was like, I don't remember you, but now I can't look away. I mean, Peggy was six feet tall. She had bright red hair. She had a statuesque, curvy body. You would not forget her. And everyone said that she had a really sassy, flirty, great banter type of personality where she'd send you little zingers, but they were always like fun and clever and not mean. She was the whole package. So he was completely taken with her right away as well. The only problem in this fledgling relationship that apparently started that very night was that they were both married. Oh, just a small roadblock. <laughs> just a tiny little problem. Now, it seems like Peggy had been heading toward divorce with her husband as it was. Later on, it came out that he was potentially seeing somebody else as well. And they ended up amicably deciding to divorce well into her affair with Jim. But when Jim started his affair with Peggy, he had only gotten married seven months earlier. Yeah, this should still be the honeymoon phase. Yeah, and his wife definitely didn't know about it. She thought they were just getting started. She had no idea that across the country, he was telling somebody else that it was basically over anyway. Wow, so sad. So her name's Jean, the wife, and she's on both the 48 Hours and the Dateline episodes. Okay. So Jim had already let infidelity end his first marriage. So his first marriage sounded like it was either a high school or college sweetheart, and they had married pretty young. That marriage had lasted for 15 years. He currently lived with Jean, his second wife, in Punta Gorda, Florida. Punta Gorda? Punta Gorda. Do you know where that is? No. I was wondering if it was like in the Tampa-ish area, because I feel like their band did shows in Tampa, so I didn't know if it was... In the no region. Idea. Yeah. Uh -uh. Big in Tampa, Buck Wild and the <laughs> Exhibitionists. So before he had even turned 40, Jim had made millions licensing a software program that he had built to Microsoft. He and his first wife had traveled the country, traveled the world. They eventually retired to Florida. However, this program, he was making something like $40,000 a month for years and years on, eventually became obsolete. The money dried up, and so did his marriage with wife number one. Oh, no. Jim started a computer support company in Florida. He even won Businessman of the Year in Punta Gorda for his new business, I believe, and eventually struck up a romantic relationship with a woman who worked for him, who was Jean, wife number two. 
Okay. Jean absolutely idolized Jim. Even now, after all of this stuff comes out, you can tell that she had been head over heels for him. She thought he was really the cat's meow. The couple had lived together for six years before they wed in Vegas in December of 2001. Over the years, Jim had changed from a straight-laced software developer into kind of a shaggy-haired lead singer with a naughty band name. <laughs> he was Buck Naked. And it sounds like Gene was younger than him and liked this transformation. She was a big fan of his music. She also was a big partier, and he had not really been a big drinker or drug user before, but Gene was a drug user. And I think that somewhere along the way, he kind of fell into that lifestyle. And it seemed like he was working more on making his band big and partying than his company by the time he met Peggy. Mm-hmm. Jim did indeed tell Peggy that he was basically just with Gene because they ran the company together. They're basically just partners. There was not really a romantic connection any longer. And that would have certainly been news to Gene. And Peggy and him had a very intense connection physically, romantically. She said later that it was this like soul bond and the way he thought was interesting and the way he made her think was interesting and the conversations they had. So it was just immediately intense. She was ready for a huge change in her life. So when she ended up divorcing her husband, she wanted to take the next step with him to move to Vegas, a place that she loved and she knew that he would love given that he was in a band. It would be a great place to play gigs. She just really thought it was going to be the best thing for both of them. However, he doesn't tell Gene this. He just basically pretends that Peggy is a connection in Vegas for booking gigs and says that he has to be in L.A. all the time. He even got one of his bandmates, who was his best friend, to come with him a couple times to cover for him, being like, oh, well, we're going out together to do a gig. So he is just lying his ass off to her at every turn because she found emails at one point, and he's like, oh, that's just like the woman that's helping me book. No. Uh... And she definitely admits later on that she was a fool and willfully ignorant in some capacity. She was completely head over heels in love with him. And she really did not believe that he was going to be unfaithful to her. They had been really, really happy when they got married. Yeah. And it's so early on. Yes. So this went on for about a year that he was playing both of them. Wow. And then in June of 2003, he told Jean that Peggy and he were involved romantically and he wanted to be with her and he didn't know what that meant for him and Jean, but he was leaving to officially move in with Peggy in Vegas. Not cool. And she was devastated. Of course. And she said that she didn't really give up on the marriage. She thought this was some passing fancy and that he was going to come back to her and he really did keep her on the hook. He kept in communication with her. She was very ride or die for him. So I think that he had this very intense connection with Peggy. But she definitely had the attitude of like, I could go on without you. I'm a survivor. Whereas Jean just lived and died for Jim. 
And so I'm sure whenever he was feeling down, he'd reach back out to his wife, who he's still legally married to, and she gave him that ego boost. She even said that even though he had moved out there in June, in September for her 40th birthday, he invited her to come out for a romantic trip to Vegas. And they stayed in a hotel together. And she thought, well, this is it. We're getting back together. And then she went back home. He didn't come with her. And then he didn't come home for Christmas that year. That's so fucked up. That Christmas was the same year that Russell Douglas was shot dead in his car on Boxing Day. Oh, God. It's like you think you're just involved in an affair, but it turns out you're involved in a murder. <laughs> yeah. Like, worst nightmare. <laughs> yeah, and things got more complicated after that. He came back to Gene and Florida in January and said, I really want to make a go of this. I want to fix my company, which was in the trash heap because he hadn't been paying any attention to it or keeping yeah. his clients. And he said, I've chosen you. This is it. This is the end of it. But in April of 2004... Jean said she opened her door one day, and who's standing there but Peggy Sue? She was on her doorstep in Florida. And she's like, he's lying to both of us. I just want you to know, I know he's living here with you, but he's seen me since. He still talks to me. He still tells me we have a future together. So he's playing both of us. Could you imagine? Oh, Like, on your doorstep. At your house. Oh. Gene was pissed. He was apparently doing some sort of appearance on a radio station or something. And she called him and she said, you better get your ass home. Oh, my God. He came home and the women said, this is an ultimatum. You have to make a decision now. You're either staying here and you're staying married to Gene or you are leaving. You are kicked out of this house and you are going to get a divorce and you're going to choose Peggy. But you have to make that choice now. Good. And he had also been really erratic. Like, all the guys in the band said he was drinking too much. He was behaving really weirdly. He was getting rude, and that wasn't his nature. Things had been going very downhill for Jim ever since he started this affair, and then especially when he came back. And he decided to pick Gene. I mean, if it seems like that's the person you go back to to, like, reassure you that you're okay and they're your comfort and they're your safe place. They're your safe space, yeah. Imagine the guilt of having that affair, too, of, that's going to make anyone crazy. Yeah. So he picked Jean, and they said adios to Peggy. And Jean thought that maybe life would get back to normal. But Jim had a lot weighing on his mind, and it was a lot more than just an ongoing affair. And his problems were going to get a lot bigger than just Peggy showing up on his doorstep. Around a similar time that this is all going down, and I think it's because Peggy was weighing heavy on his mind, I guess she had shown up at some reunion show the band was doing together. He got drunk and he admitted to his bandmate and his best friend, who had been the best man at his wedding to Gene, but had also been his cover guy when he went out to Vegas. It was this guy, Bill Hill. He admitted Bill that Hill. It's Bill Hill is his name. For real. That's his real name. <laughs> oh, my God. For real. It's Bill Hill. <laughs> Bill, Bill Hill. For yeah. real. <laughs> he admitted to Bill that he had something far worse to cover up in his dark soul than just this ongoing affair with Peggy. He explained that growing up, and Bill kind of knew this, Jim's father died when he was around 10 or 11, and his mother got remarried to a real piece of shit. And his stepfather 
It sounds like abused, especially his mother and also maybe him, just physically an abusive drunk. And he had to watch his mother get beat up. And he was only still 10 or 11. He just wasn't able to do anything to stop the abuse. And it had really screwed him up. And by the time he was older and he could have sought some sort of physical revenge on this man, the man was decrepit and died. So he had never felt like he had gotten any closure. And there had been a lot of frustration in his life having this pent up anger that had never found resolution, a resolution like therapy would have helped or like going, you know, kickboxing. I don't know. It was just this big feeling inside of him. And this was something that he had actually said to both Gene and Peggy at different points in their drunkenness or intimacy, that there was some very deep part of him that wanted to kill a man who was like his stepfather as like a proxy, that if he could kill a man who was doing that to women and children, then he would feel good about eliminating that scum from the earth. And so his deepest darkest dream was to kill a man who was a terrible human being. And he told Bill that he never believed that that was going to happen until that terrible, abusive, horrible man fell right into his lap. Wow, that's crazy that that happened that way. He said that he had divulged the secrets to Peggy And one day, Peggy said, you know how you told me that thing about how you want to kill somebody who's an abusive piece of shit? Well, I have just the guy for you. My friend Brenna, who I work with at the beauty parlor, her husband is horrific. Her husband is completely abusive to her, completely abusive to the children. There's zero evidence that Russell was ever anything but a wonderful father. And even in her police interviews, Brenna says that he was never more than maybe verbally abusive. She never insinuates that he laid a finger on her or the children. But what Jim said to Bill was that this guy was that type of guy. Essentially, it was like his stepfather all over again. And he said that they essentially set up an opportunity in which he could kill this man. He said that Russell did have life insurance policies and that Brenna was the beneficiary of these policies. So Bill was given the impression that Brenna would share this payday with Peggy and Jim. So it's Essentially, some sort of murder for hire, though he didn't really know exactly all the specifics. That had been really the silver lining, though, it sounds like. It sounded like for Jim, it had been the desire to rid the world of a child and wife abuser. Yeah, but like you don't know that that's true. I mean, you should verify before you get into some vigilante shit. Yeah. Also, we've talked about this before. It's not your job. You report them to the police and you go through the proper channels and you make sure that they pay, but especially would verify. You're going to have to see some police reports, get some proof. You're going to need some pictures. I mean, he did this based on Peggy's word. So Bill was horrified as Jim explained how Peggy had lured Russ to a location 
with the promise of a gift for Brenna. And then essentially he had stepped out. They had met each other once. So Russ knew that this was Peggy's boyfriend, Jim. So it's probably very likely that he had just rolled down his window expecting to be handed a present. Mm -hmm. And instead he had just pulled the gun out of his pocket and put it essentially right to Russ's head and shot him in cold blood. So Bill had a very, very, very hard time with this knowledge. Obviously. He said he had known this guy for a really long time. They were very good friends. He knew he wasn't lying. So sad. It's really sad. And it made him physically ill to know this and not know what to do with the information. And he was also scared. He was under the impression that he was the only one other than Peggy who knew about this. So if he got turned in, he felt like he might come for him. That's not a secret you want. No. And that's why it took him several phone calls to get comfortable telling the police really what he knew because he was frightened. So with this information, the Island County police fly out to Vegas where Peggy is and then Florida where Jim is at the same time. They don't want to give these two any opportunity to get to speak with one another. Yeah. They want to basically hit at the same moment and try to get the other one to turn on the other one. Because right now they have no physical evidence tying either of them to the murder. They just have Bill Hill's word. They really expected this couple to turn on each other, especially because it seemed like their romantic relationship was over at this point. But they got nothing. They're saying it's ridiculous. They're sticking to their story. They're saying they were with this person. They stayed in this guest house. At one point, Jim went out to get cigarettes. Oh, and good thing Peggy saved the receipt for cigarettes a year after the crime. Come on. But they would not turn on each other. And this is kind of like last week where the detectives really try to put the heat on. And then they mention the witness and they're like do you know a man named bill hill and he's like yeah it's my really good friend (laughs) (laughs) why are you telling him he's like did you say anything to bill hill why would bill hill say you committed a crime (laughs) fuck fuck i think it's on um the dateline which is really funny because they're basically saying to the investigator because they got nothing so they couldn't arrest him so they're like did you feel bad about throwing bill hill under the bus and just leaving Oh, my God. And the investigator's like, well, we figured that Jim Hewden would be busy with other things, being nervous. And we also informed Bill Hill of the necessity of coming clean about who our informant was to pressure them into confessing. And then they switched to Bill Hill's interview, and he's like, I was so scared. (laughs) I was not okay. (laughs) This poor man. He went through so much, like, God bless Bill Hill, because he went through it. So then this is all going down, and they're trying to regroup and figure out how they're going to go back and hit up Jim Hewden again and, like, what tactic they got to do because they know they're on the right track. And I think that they had flown back at this stage, but they were going to come back in. I think that's what's going on. And a huge hurricane comes flying through Florida, right? (laughs) And they had been, like, on their way back to come get him. And poor Bill Hill is talking about how he thinks he's going to go missing in the storm because if the storm doesn't kill him, Jim Hewden is going to use, like, all the craziness to come and, like, cap him. 
He said he was sleeping on his couch with his gun like underneath his body every single night waiting for his best friend to come kill him. Meanwhile, Jim had just gotten word that they were coming back again to interview him. And he doesn't know, other than Bill Hill, what else they might have found on him at this point. So in the midst of a hurricane, he tells Gene, I did something bad. Something bad happened. I got to go. I'm going to take this gun. I might kill myself. I might just go go out into the storm. If the storm doesn't kill me, I'm going to kill myself. Allegedly. This is what Gene says at the time. This is what she's saying. So she's saying he disappeared into the hurricane. So when the police are able to travel again, and now they're like trying to contact the local police saying, you got to figure out where this guy is. We think he's a murderer. We can't charge him right now, but we need to have eyes on him. And they're saying there is a gosh darn hurricane. There's houses being destroyed. We don't know where your man went. We don't know. So by the time they get there, I mean, I guess like even um, their house, Jean and Jim's had been very badly damaged in the hurricane. And she was supposed to evacuate, but she was like going through it. She was out of her mind thinking that she didn't know where her husband was going. So by the time they get to her, she's like, I don't know where he went. He's probably dead. So case closed. You killed him. I hope you feel good. (laughs) She is not going to be helping them in any capacity. She is pissed. So he's probably dead. Just forget about him, okay? (laughs) Oh, my God. Yeah. So now they're like, we don't know where he is. Yeah. And they threw Bill Hill under the bus fully. And he's out. Bill Hill never knows. He's like sleeping with one eye open for the rest of his life because Jim's gone. But Jim could pop up anywhere at any time. There's no comfort to Bill Hill. (laughs) Ugh, poor Bill Hill. (laughs) Gene's pissed off. And then I think it was just a little while after that, Peggy calls the police. And she said, I have a shocking tip to give you. You may have realized that my lover has disappeared. They're like, yes, we're very aware of that. Would you like to tell us about his whereabouts? She's like, I cannot say. I cannot say where he is. But I can tell you that he made a horrible confession to me before he left. She said that she received a phone call from Jim and that he called to tell her goodbye and that he was never going to see her again, and she would never be hearing from him again, but that he had independently killed Russell Douglas himself. She was interviewed, and she (laughs) said that during the late morning or early afternoon of December 26, when she believed he was out getting cigarettes, he had instead met up with Russell Douglas for a reason that she had no idea why and shot the man in the head. Peggy said that he had confessed to her saying, and they show this on Dateline, I'm sorry, I love you. I never meant for you to be involved in this. So she's saying that to police. That's what's on the recording. Is that like, we don't have any recording of him saying that. She's just telling them that. There's just so many ladies just talking about what happened. So now they have Peggy's word against Jim, which would Mm -hmm. be great if they could find Jim. And they have no evidence of Peggy's involvement other than kind of what Bill Hill was saying, but that's definitely hearsay because they don't have Jim 
corroborating that. They just have Bill saying that in the confession, he said Peggy was involved, but they don't have Jim. So they need something more on Peggy in order to be able to arrest her because she's the only one who they know where she is. <laughs> it's the only location that she's still in Vegas. She's doing quite well for herself. We'll get into what Peggy's been up to in a little bit. They decide to work with Crime Stoppers and try to get it all out to the media that Jim Huden and Peggy Sue Thomas were involved, potentially, their people of interest in this murder that occurred on this date, this location on Whidbey Island. They believe this type of gun was used, but they do not have the murder weapon. So they basically want to get this out in the media everywhere because maybe it'll jog somebody's memory. Maybe somebody was driving by. Maybe somebody got a gun from Jim or somebody who was in a pawn shop said, oh, this guy sold me something. They're just trying to do anything because they believe they know what happened at this point. They believe, obviously, that Brenna set something up with Peggy, who convinced her lover by manipulating him emotionally to kill Brenna's husband. So that then Brenna would have some money who could potentially buy Peggy's house and also share the wealth. So that's their theory. I think that's a pretty solid theory. <laughs> yes. Because really just Peggy and Jim on their own killing Russ seems crazy. But they didn't receive any money. They could not find the money between the two. But if she wasn't getting the money. <laughs> but if Brenna is going to get the insurance policy to buy the house, if she can't get that, then that's... Yeah, if she can't get the money, then she can't give them the money. They get a hit pretty quickly on this bulletin that they put out in the media. And it's from New Mexico, of all places. And this guy comes forward and says that his cousin, who is still living in the Washington area, sent him this message. And he had been former law enforcement himself and friendly with Jim and Peggy when they were still together and in the Whidbey Island area. So this guy was former law enforcement, and I guess that Jim had come to him and asked him if he had any guns to sell. Oh, shit. Yes, and this guy had said no. He had no guns that he wanted to sell to Jim. But he said, if you buy one, go through the legal channels, get yourself a gun, and I will show you how to shoot it. I'll show you how to use it. So while he and his family were still living in the Washington area, Jim had gone out and he had purchased a gun. And he had come over and he had asked this guy to show him how to use it. And they had done target practice in his backyard. And he said that the gun was a Bursa 380. And this would have been exactly the type of gun that would have expelled the shell that had been found and the bullet that was found, of course, in Russ's head. So now they're really excited about this tip. They were even more excited when the guy said, so that happened in the fall. And then in January of 2004, which was after Russ's murder, he came back to me and said, you know, we decided it's too much to have a gun in the house with Peggy's daughters. It's just not safe. So I'm just going to give it to you. Can I just give you this gun? So he had the gun <laughs> and he was able to give it to law enforcement. Wow. Okay. So they, of course, turned it over to the crime lab, and lo and behold, it was a perfect match. The gun microscopically matched the extractor and ejector marks on the shell casing that had been recovered wow. from the SUV 
and also match the lands and groove striations that was on the single bullet that had been extracted from Russ's brain during the autopsy. Wow. Yes. And <laughs> later on, one of Peggy's friends says, later on they were like drinking at a bar and joking about murder. And she was like, well, I would know to throw the gun in the water. Because <laughs> they were like Shade. right there by the sound. And so somebody comes forward to like give that little piece of evidence later. But right now Peggy has to be pretty pissed because Jim was running his mouth. And he just gave the gun to former law enforcement. So crazy. So crazy. So now they have enough to arrest Jim, but they still don't know where Jim was. Yeah. He's in the hurricane. He's, he's just forever in the hurricane. Well, they really don't know. Like, he's, they don't know if he's dead or alive. They don't know where he could have gone to if he is alive. They've been keeping their eyes on Jean. She's not giving anything up. So the years marched on. And Brenna did not fare so well. She did end up getting some portion of the insurance money but it was not the amount that she was supposed to get. I think eventually they had cleared her enough that she could get some of it, but there was a technicality on at least one of the policies. He had not disclosed that he had a heart murmur. And when they looked through his medical files, they found that he had a pre-existing condition. So regardless of her status as a person of interest, she still didn't get the full amount. In any case... The proceeds ended up being enough for her to buy some stuff. She bought a new house. She bought a car. Not Peggy's house, by the way. But the house that she bought at that time was later foreclosed upon when she could not continue to make the payments. Okay. None of that money that she did eventually receive go to Peggy in any capacity. But Peggy didn't really need it at this point. Peggy was doing quite well for herself. In the days after Jim disappeared, Peggy had become, I didn't even know there was a market for this, but of course there is because there's a market for everything, a very high-end, sexy, stretch limo driver in Vegas. <laughs> She's a sexy chauffeur. Okay. She marketed herself to really wealthy clients as a gorgeous former beauty queen. And one guy that she gets involved with later says that the agency basically said, Okay, we have this driver, Frank, and then we also have a former Ms. Washington State who's six feet tall and a gorgeous redhead. Which driver would you like? <laughs> I cannot. She did amazingly. She talks about it on 48 Hours because she's on the 48 Hours, and she's saying, I spoiled my guests. She's saying that she would do special things for them and pick up little treats and figure out what they liked and then make sure they were in the car and that she just was so good at customer service. She said it was her favorite job she's ever had and she was really good at it. She said that she would get nightly tips in the thousands. I'm sure. Yes. You still caused a murder, so I don't <laughs> care. <laughs> I don't care about your $1,000 tips, Peggy. <laughs> and then one day in 2007... She won the customer jackpot when she picked up a horse trainer and rancher named Mark Allen, who came from a multi-million dollar oil fortune in Texas. Mark was the one who said the thing about, you want this guy or you want this beauty queen. And he is interviewed for the Dateline. <laughs> and he's really just a cowboy. I mean, he's got multiple millions of dollars. But it's just so clear that he just really likes horses and he's a good old cowboy. 
He was completely taken by Peggy. She worked her magic on him. Then he requested her every time he went to Vegas. And the next thing you know, they were engaged five months after meeting. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I think that she had this real sassy, fiery energy. I'm, I'm thinking he's a horse trainer, horse guy, rancher. Maybe she's like this unbreakable filly. <laughs> <laughs> Giving horse. I was going to say, you know, unbreakable. Like he wants to tame her and she's so wild. Giving untamed horse. <laughs> she was definitely giving untamed horse. So they got engaged after five months and the couple was wed in a lavish wedding ceremony on his ranch with her entire family, lots of friends and other people. Andrew was very funny describing about how they had unlimited Patron tequila at this wedding. And she was like, this is a very expensive tequila, guys. I just, I want you to know how much it goes for. <laughs> Pre-Casamigos. <laughs> yes. They're just pouring Patron like it's cheap Prosecco down people's throats at this wedding. This is just so crazy that this is happening while she caused a murder. Well, she caused a murder. She's on her third marriage. She's just living the high life. Brenna's life isn't going that great. Goodness knows where Jim is at this point. And we all know where Russell is. Yes, unfortunately. So basically, she is just living it up. Except for Mark very quickly realized he made a huge mistake. <laughs> huge mistake. He later went on, I think, Dayline and 48 Hours. And called it the biggest mistake he had ever made in his entire life. He also told Dateline more than once, or they used the clip repeatedly, that Peggy was, quote, pure evil. Pure. Whoa. Evil. He said, you look in her eyes and she's pure evil. So he said that right after they got married, she moved right into the ranch. She immediately started trying to get him to fire his long-term staff and help and replace those people with her people. She got really pushy about taking over all the financial management and the accounting. She ended up hiring her best friend, who she had been friends with at Whidbey Island. And even this woman, who was her friend for so long, for years and years, ended up turning on her because she was behaving so abhorrently. She almost right from the get-go started secretly spending and secretly moving money around in accounts. And she even showed her friend that she had multiple secret storage units where she was putting priceless antiques and jewelry and even a sports car. Oh, my God. She was asking her friend if she thought she could get away with buying a speedboat and, like, stashing it in a storage unit as well. So she is just hoarding all this stuff. There was at least $400,000, I think, that the friend became aware that she was moving into private accounts that he didn't know about. This man's just like living his life, working on a ranch, running an oil barren fortune. That's why you don't marry the limo driver. <laughs> Unless he's the guy from Die Hard. He's so cute. That's why you don't marry the female limo driver. <laughs> Unless you're a good one listening to us while you're driving your limo, you're definitely not like her. <laughs> Shout out to our Uber driver in Palm Springs. We love you, Palm Springs Uber driver. <laughs> so he starts getting winds of what's going on. And I think that at some point, even her close friend was kind of like, I got to 
let him know that this isn't good. But she had really infiltrated, like her mom was living on the ranch. She had people all involved in what was going on. And they were only married for 10 or 11 months. Jesus, is that enough to be annulled? He basically said, I think I know what you're doing. She managed to, and Anne said that this was a conservative figure, secret away about a million dollars worth of money and goods in like 10 months. Insane. <laughs> yeah. And when he tried to say, I'm putting an end to this and we're getting divorced, she ended up trying to instigate some sort of fight with him. He wasn't having it, even though she's a six foot woman. So like, it was scary. Like when she's trying to like rough me up, he doesn't want to admit it because he's like a tough guy, but she was a big gal. And she tried to say then that he had assaulted her, but there was no evidence that this was the case and the complaint was thrown out. And the judge actually said, because she was trying to say, he assaulted me, I need a restraining order and you need to kick him off his property so that I can live here now. And okay. he has to leave. And the uh, <laughs> judge said, absolutely not. There's no evidence that this happened. And guess what? You've been married for about 10 months. You get your ass back to Vegas, m'lady, <laughs> and leave this poor man alone. He's later on the dateline saying that the divorce lasted longer than the marriage. Oh, my God. That's so sad. It's so sad. This poor guy. He said he could see it in her eyes. He said that she didn't tell him until the night before the wedding that she had been accused of having a part in a murder. She denied it, but he said that there was a look in her eyes when she told him, and it was kind of too late to pull out at that point. So I think that their divorce ended up technically ending after 11 months, and even beyond the over a million dollars worth of stuff she stole, he had to pay her $25,000 a month in alimony. And that's not even me changing it for <laughs> like modern days for 20 years ago. So insane. Yeah. So she got $25,000 in month and she was given a houseboat that she had demanded he buy that he had called the Peggy Sue. And she changed the name to off the hook, meaning she was off the hook of being married to him. I can't. Well, Peggy might have come out on top in that divorce, but her luck was about to change, as was the luck of her erstwhile lover, Jim Huden. I think Peggy was the only one doing well after all these years. Jean was not doing well. In 2011, she was facing what I believe was her 18th drug offense. Ooh. Jean had a serious substance abuse issue which I'm sure was exacerbated by the horrible secrets she had been keeping for the last seven years and everything that had happened in her relationship with Jim. The authorities had long since suspected that Jean knew where Jim was, but was standing by her man. And they were right. They were right, Dandy. Faced with doing some hard prison time for at least a handful of years because she was such a multiple offender or a deal if she would finally rat out the man who had cheated on her, sapped her of her strength and her money and ruined her life. Well, Jean finally chose herself. Good. Jean told the authorities that Jim was alive and well in Veracruz, Mexico. Uh, Veracruz. Yes. Are you ready for this? He was 
teaching guitar lessons and performing as Maestro Jim. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. I don't have enough wine for this. So Jean says on the Dateline that she did not actually know whether or not Jim was alive or dead until she got a call from a Greyhound station in Houston, Texas, saying that they had found his bag and there was some contact information for Jean in it. And there had been a gun and a half-empty bottle of Crown Royal, which is what he drank in it. And then eventually she got contacted from her attorney saying that he was alive and he had managed to cross into Mexico, but he didn't have any money. And so basically, in order for him to survive, she would have to send him some money. No, she doesn't. He can earn money on his own like every other person who's on the lam. Yeah, so she said this, but then I think it's on the 48 hours she says something else. So Jean is in love with this guy, but she's not exactly reliable. She's kind of a mess, yeah. I think that she told him straight from the get-go, don't kill yourself, run away. And I think that she was trying to make it sound like, oh, I didn't know, and then I did, and then I was worried about him, so then I gave him money. Because I think she absolutely 100% knew from the moment that he left. That's why she's like, I guess he's dead. Case closed. (laughs) Stop looking for him. I very much believe that she still thought they had some sort of future. She was still in love with him and that she wanted him to be alive and she wanted him to be okay. I mean, even if they didn't, she didn't think they were going to have a future. If you still love someone, it's like hard to not try to protect them. And that's what she said she was trying to do. So she said that she had had some sort of inheritance at some point and She said she spent every last dollar other than on her own survival, on his survival. So she sent him money. She also alleged that Peggy knew about all of this. Peggy knew he was alive. She also knew where he was. And that Peggy had actually come out to Florida and she had also gone to Vegas, I think, on one or two occasions because they didn't want to talk on the phone. And that... Peggy had also contributed to sending Jim some money so that he could stay in Mexico and not come back to the United States and get caught. Wow. Yes. She even said, under other circumstances, I think that Peggy and I could have been best friends. (laughs) What's it called? Eskimo sisters? (laughs) Eskimo sisters. This isn't the first wives club. You guys are, like, not the first murder club. Like, what? No. You're not. This is, no. This is not happening. It's just unhealthy. It's just unhealthy. I mean, it's clear that Jean's not very healthy. This attachment to Jim, and she's got a lot of her own issues, clearly. And she definitely hitched her wagon to the wrong man, for sure. Yeah. So she says that she had been down to visit him a couple times, and that at some point she had even thought about running away, too, and giving up life in the United States and all of her friends and family and everyone she knew because she so desperately wanted to be with him. I probably would have. You love somebody that much. Yeah, you know. Mm-hmm. But basically, she doesn't directly blame him for her own legal and substance abuse issues, but she definitely says it contributed to her hardship, obviously, and that eventually when she was faced with this prison time, she finally thought, why am I doing this? Why do I keep doing this? Because at every opportunity, they were like, we know you have information. We'll give you a deal. And she'd always said no. They had always been watching her. They'd always been right around the corner being like, still watching Eugene, give us some information on Jim. And she had just been so strong for so long 
And she said, I was done. I was just done. So she said where he was. I think it's actually quite huge that she was on the 48 hours as well. Yeah, I feel like she was still, if you watch both the shows, it's clear that she's still working through these decisions and what happened. She also did admit at this point, too, that when he left, whether or not she knew he was leaving and running away and not potentially killing himself, she knew he had killed Russell. She said that actually he had admitted it to her when she was in Vegas. And that's why she had been kind of like, baby, come home. Like, get out of this situation. Come home to me. Does anyone know? Are you going to be okay? It sounds like she didn't even think about the fact that this was a real man and he had two children and that he had a family. She just was thinking about Jim. Like, are you okay? Does anyone know? Are you going to get caught? Are they on to you? She was just thinking about him. Yeah. One track of what she cares about at that time. Yeah. Exactly. And so she only wanted him back. She only wanted him to be okay. And she said that he did feel like he had done a good thing for a little while until he realized he didn't really know that much about what Russell was really like. And then he felt horrible, which is kind of where all of the heavy drinking and drug use and his bandmates saying that he was falling apart came from and why he shortly after the murder went back to Gene. But he still, that didn't solve it. Like just being back with Gene and being back in Florida did not fix it. I mean, he was going to have to live with this. There's a, a Mexican friend of his who's on Dateline who's like totally gobsmacked that he was a murderer, said he was, they played together in some band and that he was the most gentle and nice guy and he just could not imagine it. By the time they got Jim, he was he had like really, really long hair and very tan skin. Like I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> so long. <laughs> really leaned in. He really leaned into the whole expat guitar teacher. Musician. Yeah. Musician thing. <laughs> So she disclosed his location, and Jim was arrested on June 9th, 2011, and extradited to the United States. Gene also admitted that he had said basically all the same things he said to Bill Hill, and she alleged that Peggy was aware of what he had done and been somehow a part of it. She didn't have very specific information on she had ordered it or anything, but she just knew that Peggy was part of it. Okay. Jim, when he was captured, still refused to turn on Peggy, who, of course, the authorities believed was the linchpin of this plot and the only one that could deliver them Brenna. So if they wanted to get Brenna, they had to get Jim to turn on Peggy, to turn the heat up on Peggy so she would turn on Brenna. So crazy to think about, like, the priority of who they were trying to get. They're trying to go back to the birth of this plan, the source of the idea of killing this man, who was the one who had the instigation, who instigated this rather, but they only had proof on the actual gunman who was the least related to Russell and had the least compelling motivation. I mean, they're bringing up some childhood trauma to explain why he killed a near stranger. Nonetheless, he just would not turn on her. He refused to say anything. He said, I won't say anything. I plead the fifth. I'm not talking. She didn't know anything. But he wasn't even saying that because he's like, talk to my lawyer. I'm not even telling you shit. By this time, however, they had picked up one little piece of forensic evidence 
which is that Peggy's fingerprints were found on the instruction manual of the gun that was the murder weapon. Facepalm. That's all they had. They also had the testimony, though, of Bill Hill and Jean, who both said that she was aware and was part of this in some capacity. And so they did charge her with murder, believing that hopefully that would be enough. So Peggy was allowed out on bail while she was awaiting trial, and it was clear that they were going to do Jim's trial first and then Peggy. So she is, like, out on bail with her little ankle monitor, and she is, like, getting all her affairs in order, getting all the laser hair removal, taking care of herself. This was my favorite thing that she did. She ended up doing the tattooed makeup, like the forever makeup. She got like her eyebrows and eyeliner and lipstick and everything done because if she was going away, they weren't going to let her have makeup in prison. She just wanted to make sure that even if she was sent away, she was always looking fly. Unreal that those are your priorities in this time. It's unreal that those are your priorities, but I'm also shocked that we have made it. 183 episodes, full-length episodes, with so many of these materialistic, narcissistic women. And she is the first innovator to get the tattooed makeup before she goes to trial. I feel like it was also, like, peaking at that time, too. Like, the forever makeup was, like, a big thing in, like, 2000. What What is this? Mid-aughts? Yeah, this is, like, 2012. Yeah. It was, like, hot. Now it's terrifying to me because, like, trends always change. Don't do anything forever. It's really scary. No, but, I mean, worst case, she's not going to have anything. So it does make sense to <laughs> yeah. me. Yeah. So when you say she was getting her affairs in order, that's what you're referring to. <laughs> yeah, she also got, like, some filler in her lips, but that'll eventually go away. She did some other things so that she was looking good. For the other inmates. Yeah, so the— the prosecutor was very frustrated, too, because she was allowed to leave the state so that she could go and make sure that her property around her houseboat was still up to snuff for the HOA. Okay. He was like, you can hire somebody to do that. You do not need to leave the state. But she did leave the state and came back, apparently. So she fulfilled her promise. Jim went on trial first in July of 2012. Now that was nearly nine years since he had put a bullet in Russell Douglas's head. So for all of those years, he was out living it up, drinking margaritas, cervezas. Yes, his attorney had tried to argue, of course, reasonable doubt, but there was a lot of evidence stacked up against him, and the jury just was not having it. After an eight-day trial in which Peggy did not appear, because I think that they were worried that... She would do more damage than help on both sides. (laughs) The jury found Jim guilty after only a few hours of deliberation. It was like basically they went out on a at like 1 p.m. on a Friday and they were back by 11 a.m. on a Monday. Yeah. So Gail, Russ's mother, appealed to Jim during the punishment phase to please just tell them why. Because this doesn't make any gosh darn sense. There obviously had to be more to the story than just he believed without any evidence that Russell was abusive. They're like, it just cannot be it is basically what she said. So Gail said, I gave him his first hug, but I wasn't there to give him his last hug. In one split second, you pulled the trigger and you killed Russ and you changed our lives and our futures forever. He was a good father to his children. He was in no way an abuser. 
You must have listened to someone else and someone needs to own up. Someone needs to tell the truth so this family could put it behind us. Jim had the opportunity to make a statement, of course, and he chose to say nothing. Wow. He owes that to her. I feel like that completely. In response, the judge gave him the maximum sentence of 80 years, which I believe is not without the possibility of parole. So it's effectively a death sentence because at this point he was 59 years old. The judge told him that he owed it to the family and to the court to tell whatever he knew. Yeah, this is it. She said everyone needs to know why this horrible crime happened. She said, quote, there is something more to this case and we all know it. Anything else is just crazy. And nothing. Nothing. His attorney later said that he advised him not to say anything because they were working on appeal, but many, many years have gone by now at this point. 20 years since the murder and 10, 11 since Since the trial, yeah. And he has still not said anything. Gross. In a pretrial hearing for Peggy's case, Jim continued not to talk. So they essentially subpoenaed him and forced him to get on the stand and he just pleaded the fifth to everything. It's crazy because he was so not himself when he like went back with Gene and had already done the crime. And so it seems like you'd think he'd have that conscience, but I guess not. To want to. Yeah, come clean. Maybe he was still just thinking about himself. Maybe he was all screwed up about maybe getting caught. I don't know. I cannot say I don't know anything about this man's mindset. One of the detectives on the case said that Peggy did not seem nervous at all. She just watched him kind of coldly while he was saying, I plead the fifth, I plead the fifth, I plead the fifth. But the detective said that he spied Jim walking by her and giving her a wink. Oh, my God. Okay. And without Jim, the case against Peggy was shaky. All they really had forensically was a fingerprint, but she lived with that man. So any good attorney would be like, well, obviously they're living together. Her fingerprint would get on all of his stuff. This is no evidence that she had anything to do with the murder weapon. Gene Hewden, of course, was a recovering addict. She also had a mile-long rap sheet for various drug offenses, and they could paint her as a woman with an axe to grind against the other woman. Yeah. Unfortunately, Bill Hill, poor Bill Hill, had suffered a major cardiac event. No. Probably from this. I'm actually not entirely sure what's going on with Bill Hill to this day, but I know he was on two of the programs, so I'm thinking he survived. But at the time that she was going to potentially go on trial... He was in the intensive care unit, and I'm sure that his team of doctors and surgeons said, there's absolutely no way this guy can no, yeah, testify. He's been through an enormous amount of stress, which has contributed to his health condition. So they lost Bill Hill for testifying. And then there had been talk of a secret witness who came forward that could maybe sway members of the jury. Because this secret witness was Peggy's own sister, Brenda. Brenda and Brenna? Brenna's her friend. Brenda's her sister. (laughs) Yeah. So Brenda was one of her half-sisters on her father's side. So one of the children who had gone through this horrible event with their own mother. And Brenda had gone through two bad marriages. She had had a challenging time in her life. Okay. 
also clearly a name from 90210. <laughs> and also the 60s. I feel like that was a very popular name to name your kid in the 60s. Okay. And that's why they were all like 20s and teenagers in the 80s. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. Yep. That yeah. Works. <laughs> So in 2003, Brenda had been considering a divorce from her second husband, who was the father of one of her children, and she had been telling Peggy all about her troubles and what was going on and what she was stressed about and how she needed to divorce him, but she was kind of frightened to go through with it. And she said that it was when she was dating Jim that she received a very chilling phone call one night. Peggy Sue was on the phone, and she said, we have the answer to all your problems, essentially. And then she's like, let me put Jim on the phone. And Jim offered to take him out, her husband, so that she wouldn't have to go through the hassle of divorce. Wow. Brenda was horrified. She said, no, that's the father of my son. Absolutely not. We're not doing that. And she said that it hadn't come up again, but she'd always been terrified. Yeah, creeped out. Creeped out. And when, of course, all of this came to light, she felt like she had no choice but to go forward and tell the authorities what she knew and that they had already offered essentially to do the same thing for her. However, the pressure leading up to Jim and Peggy's trials, as well as it sounds like there was a relationship issue going on in her life, and I'm sure just a lot of the trauma and heartbreak that she had survived through became too much for Brenda to bear. And on September 18th, 2011, and Jim's trial was early the next year, I think middle of the next year. Brenda committed suicide by hanging. It's very sad. It's very sad. A lot of people were looking into whether her sister found out that she was going to testify against her and this could have been staged, but it was not. This was definitely, unfortunately, suicide. So crazy. Given the weak case against Peggy and Jim absolutely refusing to talk, the state was forced to make a deal to get any sort of conviction on Peggy in their head. She would plead guilty to first-degree criminal assistance involving first-degree murder, and she would be sentenced the day after Valentine's Day 2013 she was sentenced to the maximum, which was only four years. What? She has since served her time, and she was released in 2016. Jim Huden remains in prison. Jessica. I know. Peggy's out. She did her four years. I wonder how she feels about having those permanent eyebrows then. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they served her well while she was in the clink. Who knows? <laughs> Her daughters have stood by her side. Her ex-husband was also very supportive of her. But the oil cowboy said she's pure evil. <laughs> yep. I'm pretty sure oil cowboy thinks it's, she did it, but she maintains her innocence. What about Anne Rule? Anne Rule definitely was really pissed off and bummed out. Her trial kept getting moved a bunch of times. Like, Anne Rule keeps talking about, like, how many times she had to pack her suitcase and change her hotel reservations. <laughs> it's like, I read some of the reviews and they're like, I love Anne Rule, but I'm like the seventh mention of having to change her reservations and call the hotel and the airline. I was like, okay, Anne Rule, let's stick to the case. It is kind of annoying though. <laughs> it is annoying. She was saying that she was getting embarrassed because she kept having to move all of her reservations because they kept moving her case around. And then eventually the investigators called her and were like, bad news. 
she's going to get away with it. Wow. Mm-hmm. Jim Hewden is still in prison. He's still alive. And he has never turned on her. Gene is on both shows essentially being like, he must have really loved her, which is heartbreaking for Gene. Yeah. Jean passed away a couple years ago, a few years ago, so she is no longer with us. Brenna was never charged with a crime in connection with her husband's murder at all. Wild. Wild. There is a really good Lifetime movie about this. It's Diane Neal, who plays Casey Novak in Law & Order SVU, and she plays a really, really, really good Peggy. I have to say, she played her with verve. <laughs> and the Lifetime movie keeps it kind of open-ended about whether Brenna was involved or not. Because they kind of played it both ways. They played it like she was a woman who was kind of still in love with her husband or trying to figure out what to do, but also frustrated with him. And they kind of played it off like maybe she had something to do with it or maybe she just genuinely vented to Peggy and Peggy decided to take it into her own hands. And I'm wondering if that's like, did they have a thrill killing thing because they had called her sister? And that was when you said that. I thought maybe that too. Like he got off on the first one and then. Yeah, like he was turned on by the idea or she was turned on by the idea of him killing somebody. And she helped set it up just for that. And she also thought maybe if she has the money, then she'll finally buy my house and I'll get that money. Which thrill killing is way more to be concerned about than a sex box. <laughs> yes. But so the police still feel like Brenna was involved, but they've never been able to yeah. prove it. But also, like, I, like, want their kids to have someone. Yeah. To my knowledge, she hasn't remarried. She went back to her maiden name. She left Whidbey Island. I think she's still working as a hairstylist. The kids are adults now. Whew. Jessica. I know. This was a tough case. I do have one really fun Wikipedia fun fact. Are you ready? Really fun Wikipedia fun fact. Super fun. <laughs> Super fun. Extra fun this edition. So the Karma Fairy usually taketh, but this time she gaveth. Mark Allen, Peggy's third husband, our cowboy oil man over here, uh huh, probably wasn't even totally finalized on the divorce in 2009 when his horse, Mind That Bird, won the 2009 Kentucky Derby. Fuck yes. Mind That Bird's victory was the second largest upset in the 185-year history of the Derby. Wow. In fact, if you had placed a $2 win bet at the time, it would have given you $103. That's, That's incredible. What a long shot he was. And in fact, he had started from so far behind that the commentator person didn't even say his name because he was just so far behind. And then he came like crazy from behind, just like this, cr I don't even know how to describe it. It was like nuts. And he ended up winning by like a crazy amount. It ended up being six and three quarters length, which was the largest margin of victory in over 40 years. 
It was just like, oh, he's coming. He's coming around. He's coming around the stretch. Here he goes. Okay, he's going. It's like, he's beating everyone. He's passing everyone. It's like, can he keep this up? And then he just like blows by them all. We should go to the Kentucky Derby sometime. Well, Ann Rule was saying that she took like this little special glee in the fact that Peggy would have loved the Kentucky Derby, especially being in the winner's circle with the winning horse. And she was just like, oh, she would have loved it so much. I'm so glad that she did not get to experience that. That he was smart enough to get her out. Yeah. He got her out by then and she did not get any part of the proceeds of the purse and his other winnings. Wikipedia says that this horse has a lifetime earnings of over $2.2 million. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> So he got his money back from yes. Peggy. Peggy, apparently, he says on, I think it's the Dateline, he says that on one of these cases or like some coverage of this in some media outlet, Peggy was also described as a horse trainer and horse breeder because that's what she was calling herself while she was with him. And he was like, well, that gave me a good laugh because she couldn't even get up on a horse. He's like, she didn't know the first damn thing about a horse. <laughs> Oh, so she was giving horse, but she didn't know horse. <laughs> no. In conclusion, we love you, Mark. But if both your passion and livelihood are horses and you live your life on a ranch, maybe you shouldn't marry somebody so quickly who can't even ride horses. Yeah. And I think it's safe to assume that we should always be weary of someone who self appoints themselves the nickname maestro. Never a good look. Do not call yourself a maestro. Ever. This isn't even the first time we've had a bad maestro. No. <laughs> and as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so some good-looking limo driver doesn't fleece you out of more than a million dollars. <laughs> Bye. 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 